0: give thanks uh, with you all for what Steve announced regarding the Christmas offering. Uh, What an encouragement uh, that I think, uh, I didn't reveal the number to uh, the Pastoral Search Committee as it had its first official meeting by Zoom uh, this week, Uh, but I told them there were things to be thankful for that uh, uh, are a big part of what it means to be a church and uh, I think it reminds us that uh, God is faithful, but that we should be faithful to uh, deal with the things that we need to deal with to prepare ourselves in the church for the future as well. So it's both uh, a way to rest in the Lord uh, that he is working but also to work because we can rest in the Lord as we work and prepare uh, for uh, the future. Uh, There is a sermon outline, if you didn't pick it up, and if you want to sneak out and get one, they're on the tables out in uh, the lobby. I think it's also available online. Uh, Before I pray, uh, these words from Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, you both are the word and have given us the word in your Son and given us the word written, we come to you knowing that you discern us better than we ourselves, and we ask that you would take what we study this morning and that you would quicken it and use it to transform us another step forward in to the image of Christ by your word, by your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Want to lay out before us this morning um, some thoughts and realities from uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings chapter 2, some texts that uh, Uh, Some of you may never have heard a sermon on, and uh, when I read the first text you may wonder, why am I hearing one this morning? (laughs) But I think you will see quickly that in this narrative that weaves together King David of Israel's uh, interactions and dealings and then his son Solomon's dealing with a man named Shammai, uh, that there is much to learn. And much reminder that our present and our future safety are in God's covenant grace and mercy. That's the big idea. Let me say it again, that uh, our present and future safety are in God's covenant grace and mercy. David learned that in unique ways. Uh, I think the scripture has it for us to learn over And over again. In this first section, I want us to look at King David, a sinner who, when God's light and God's discipline and God's grace uh, were shined on his sin, by God's grace, it revealed his heart from God. But it also revealed deeply how sinful he is. So to dig into that, I want to read first from 2nd Samuel 16, verses 5 to 14. Hear God's word. When David came to Bahurim, and let me just set the context, David has lost his kingdom to his son Absalom. There are a lot of pieces to the story as to why David and his men were fleeing Jerusalem. But fleeing they are, and they're on their way down to the Jordan River. So when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his, David's right, and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, one of David's warriors, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you? You sons of Zariah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself." Would you take note that in the midst of this mess of losing the kingdom and Shimei's cursing him and David refusing to stop him, that David's perspective on his life is deeply God-centered. And that's why... David is called a man after God's own heart. Even in the midst of this kind of circumstance, he's living quorum Deo before the face of God and interpreting his circumstances that way. Before we look at the backdrop to David's response to Shemiah, I want us to look at one difficult verse in this text uh, just for a moment. Uh, the verse is 1 Samuel 16, 12, which the ESV translates... It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me today, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And if you looked at other versions like the New American Standard and the NIV, you would find that they're all pretty much in sync with that idea of that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Uh, That word, without getting into a lot of technicalities, is the word out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, And it came to be in most of the translations because it seemed to make more sense out of the the text. But I think this is one of these rare places where, uh, while it's an understandable translation, because the Hebrew word can mean several things. It can mean iniquity, it can point to the eyes and weeping that flows from the eyes because of affliction, and the ideas are all messed up together. But the Hebrew word usually is translated uh, iniquity. And thus you could translate verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity, David says, and that the Lord will repay me with good for Shammai's cursing today. And the thought is, and you'll see in just a moment how much that fits the narrative of 2 Samuel. David's thought is that God is such a God that I deserve to be cursed. He's He's being faithful in allowing me to be cursed because of my iniquity. But perhaps God will be as he sometimes is, a God who, even though he's giving me the judgment that I deserved and was promised, that he will yet bring good to me through this negative thing that he promised would happen to me. Do you catch the drift? To understand it, uh, it's helpful to go back and uh, look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you've got your Bible with you, you might want to turn there for just a moment. 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 15. And you'll see how this fits into what's happening in David's life. 2 Samuel 12, 7, Nathan said to David, "'You are the man.'" This is after David's sin with Bathsheba. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised, God says through Nathan to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the judgment The sword shall never depart from your house, David. Because you have despised me. Here's David, the man after God's own heart. And God twice in one paragraph says, You despised my word, you despised me. You've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And if you know the story, when Absalom came in and took over Jerusalem, David had left ten of his concubines to take care of the house. And Absalom, his son, got evil counsel and went in to David's concubines on the roof of the palace in the eyes of the city. To make himself a stench in David's eyes and to make the breach between them even greater. Verse 12, for you did it secretly, God says, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And here's David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. A lot of commentators and a lot of us over the years want David to say a whole lot more. I mean, that's not much of a confession. Uh, I mean, lay it out, tell us the details. But I've told you before, the Hebrew text in narrative is often very concise, very terse, very few words. And I think more is said by the less here. David said, There's nothing else to say. It's against the Lord I've sinned. No excuses. That's the reality, and that's why David is called a man after God's own heart. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die, even though he deserved it. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And the first child of Bathsheba by King David did indeed die. And then Nathan went to his house. The most important sending in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and if you want to do a Bible study, uh, look at the sendings in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The most important one in this chapter is the Lord's sending Nathan. God shows David that he loves him by sending Nathan to him to tell him the truth about himself. Oh, how much we need people to tell us the truth about ourselves. Because we are so good at lying to ourselves. So good at making excuses. And God's love is wondrously found there. And... This section in David's life and uh, Samuel the prophet's life and King Saul's life is so rich in helping us understand what it means to walk with God. In 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 15, God is gracious to Saul, the first king that he chose for Israel. And Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites, wipe out everybody they were God's enemies. They were Israel's enemies. He was to wipe out all of the cattle. And Samuel goes to him, and it's one of those places where there's some of the saddest humor in the Bible when Saul says, I did it, I did it. And then in the background, there's ba ba, And Samuel the prophet says, what then is this bleating of sheep that I hear if you have done what you were told? And the sheep condemn King Saul for being unfaithful. And so, Saul says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, I have sinned, good start, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, good start, and your words. But then he tries to explain. And he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. In other words, it was the people's fault. We're back to the garden were Adam's blaming Eve and Eve's blaming the serpent. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord as the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, David. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Do you see what's going on with Saul? Saul says, I sinned, but please come back to Jerusalem and by your presence honor me in the eyes of the people. In other words, make me look good again to the people, even though I rebelled against the Lord. And Samuel says, I won't do it. Samuel does end up going back, but he goes back only to slay King Agag in the presence of Saul and in the presence of the leaders of Israel, so the word would spread that Saul hadn't done his job. And thus we have Saul, a man not after God's own heart, but we see David's heart revealed. He's responded in humility to God's pointing out his sin and is willing even to seem foolish to his men to acknowledge the active providence of God in his life. And what happens next is after a time, the kingship is returned to David. David's armies defeat Absalom's armies. Absalom is killed. And we find ourselves in 2nd Samuel 19:15, uh, back at the Jordan River, as David's returning to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 19:15. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah not the person, but people from the tribe, came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, there he is again, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Zebah, the servant of the house of Saul with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera fell down before the king, King David, as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, "'Let not, my lord, hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord left the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph of the northern tribes.'" to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zariah answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what, I ha- what have I to do with you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? It's almost like Jesus with Peter, Get behind me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do, un- do I not know that I am this day king over Israel. And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Shammai deserved to be condemned to death for his hideous disrespect of the Lord's anointed. But David, knowing his own sin, shows mercy. Because he knows he's more guilty of worse things than Shammai. And so we move quickly to Shammai in our second heading, the son of Gera. The text tells us he's of the house of King Saul, and that's important. He's a Benjaminite. And Shammai is a sinner who, when the light and grace of God shine on his sin, reveals his heart for himself and for his own world, not his heart for God. One commentator calls him shrewd, another, a snake pretty skillful guy. He wants to be the first one there to try to make amends to King David as David becomes king again. And he brings a thousand, whether it's a literal number or whether it's a group that's normally around a thousand of the army. And David needs the Benjaminites to unite the kingdom, northern and southern. And so it's not a good time to start killing people and purging, or everybody wonders, am I going to get purged next? And David, out of both humility and his own shrewdness, doesn't kill him. And so I want to move us forward quickly in the text to 1 Kings chapter 2. David is near death and his son Solomon is about to take over. And David is preparing Solomon to uh, establish the kingdom firmly, to deal with their, the enemies. And so 1 Kings 2 Verse 8, he reminds Solomon in addition to three other characters that he talks to him about. You can read it in 1 Kings 2. "'And there is also with you, Solomon, Shammai the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, "'I will not put you to death with the sword.'" Now therefore, Solomon, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. David knows that Shammai, who is an enemy of the kingdom and very shrewd, needs to be dealt with, but he trusts Solomon to know how to deal with him and when to deal with him. Verse 10, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. And above all, David knew God's incredible grace to himself, that this was not the moment for him to bring judgment. And he also understood that Shammai did have in his own mind feasible reasons for his attitude towards King David. King David was loyal to Saul, and he had heard all the rumors, all the stories of what David did to Saul. They weren't true, but he heard them. He heard that it was David was the one that had killed Abner, the faithful commander. He heard that it was David that had killed Ishbosheth, who took over for uh, Saul as king of the northern tribes. It wasn't. David's helpers were some of his worst enemies at times in spreading the bloodshed in ways that it didn't even need to be done. But he had heard the stories. There's a principle that we can learn from all this, and it's really pretty simple. The best side of any story you'll ever hear is the one you're hearing at that moment. Have you ever noticed that? The best side of any story you ever hear about an event, a happening, is the one that you hear at that moment. I had a mentor who told me uh, about his early weeks in a new church as a pastor, and he had this sweet young wife come in to him and want to talk to him, and she began to pour out her heart about what her young husband had said to her and uh, what he was like towards her, and the worst of it all was at the end of one conversation that turned into a battle, The husband had locked her in the bedroom closet, and my mentor was just getting angrier and angrier at this young husband. I mean, how could he be this way? And he said to her, do you mind if I call him? And she said, of course, please do. I came to you. You're my pastor. And so he called, and the husband was gracious on the phone and uh, said, I can't get clear of work this afternoon, but I will be there at seven o'clock, eight o'clock tomorrow morning. You tell me when. And so the husband comes in and meets with him, and my friend tells the husband what the wife said, and then the husband begins to tell his side of what was going on in the story, and the pastor finds himself saying, she said what to you? She was doing what? She was tearing up what? And all you did was lock her in the closet for a minute or two so she could calm down? Now, I'm not recommending, husbands, that you lock your wives in the closet. Don't say that. But I just want you to understand there's more than one side to a story, isn't there? And often we're quick to judge. We're not slow, quick to listen and slow to speak and and slow to get angry. But let's pick back up the story very quickly and see how Solomon's wisdom is displayed. 1 Kings 2 verse 36. Then the king, Solomon, sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. Shammai deserves death, but Solomon says build your house in Jerusalem. I know you got a house a few miles outside, but you build your house in Jerusalem. You dwell there, and you do not go out from there to any place whatever, for on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die, your blood shall be on your own head. And Shammai said to the king, what you say is good as my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem many days, but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shammai's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath, down towards the coastal plain and the Mediterranean. And when it was told, Shammai, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shammai arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath, to Achish, to seek his servants. Shammai went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, No, for certain, That on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever from Jerusalem, you shall die. And you said to me, what you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shema, you know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David, my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shammai down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. As we tie this all together, uh, at least two important things are being stressed at Solomon's reign As Solomon's reign is established and that's important because it shows that the Davidic covenant the promises of God to David will go beyond David and ultimately be completed in Jesus one we've already mentioned trust in God's covenant promises and and ways Uh, that's what was being asked of all the people the other is regard dealing with the king's enemies and it has two aspects for Solomon to be safely established as king the king's enemies need to be dealt with. That is a reality, and some have noted that there are probably at least a couple of reasons why Solomon wants Shammai in Jerusalem. He can keep an eye on him. Pretty shrewd king. Those who would undermine Solomon must be dealt with. Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and then Shammai. They're all in this second chapter of First Kings. And note that there's an end times parallel here. I can only touch on this. The kingdom is being established. What Solomon is doing may seem a little rough when you read it, uh, but if you think Solomon was being rough, read the book of Revelation of what Jesus does to establish the kingdom and who gets into the holy city and who doesn't. And go back to the prophecies at the end of Isaiah and see the foreshadowing of all of that. But I think what is most remarkable about God's dealing with Shammai is the means of covenant mercy that Solomon's offer offers him. The text doesn't spell this out, but if you know the Older Testament, uh, it ought to jump out at you. You know, where is Shammai to be safe? In Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? The city of God. The city where the Ark of Covenant is. The city where the mercy seat is, where Solomon is showing him mercy at the footstool of God's feet. I love that. I think I may have mentioned to you that the, the Hebrew in Psalm 99 and other places stutters. It, it calls the mercy seat the footfootstool of God. Reminding us that only God's feet fit in this glorious building, whether it's Herod's or whether it's Solomon's. But the very presence of God is there. And if Shimei would only cling to the mercy, not only of Solomon, but the mercy of God and stay close to the Lord and to the King, he would be safe, the city of peace. But he forfeits his life because he will not cling to the only true place of safety. And I remind you, your present and future safety lies with God's covenant grace and mercy. The ultimate mercy seat in Jerusalem, the cross of our Lord Jesus. So how do we apply this and quickly and then we're done how do we live out the mercy of God's mercy seat on the cross thirdly and finally we have a new heart for God if we're born again in Christ and and it's revealed in our being slow to believe gossip of one another of our being quick to listen and slow to speak for the wrath of man does not promote the righteousness of of God, James tells us. We can learn from Shemai that we need to value, really from David, uh, Shemai, by contrast, we value God's presence, His grace and His mercy and in Christ above all. And David stayed close to God before the face of God. Even in his sin, he turned quickly there, so be careful with your lips. The book of James, the tongue, causes great harm in the church and in the world to know the greatness of your own sins as you consider how you'll deal with your critics especially in your own family when you're hurt by your spouse or your children whether they're young or adult children what do you deserve long for God to answer your iniquity with grace and long for it for others Uh, brothers and sisters the older I get the more I'm aware of how much I've messed up over the years. Uh, Of sins of omission and lack of wisdom in dealing with my family. At times, also with the church. So how should I deal with others? Should I be shocked at what happens in some churches? No. Doesn't mean I have to like it. But I need to know that If I know myself, I must respond like David does and and be a man after God's own heart. What do I deserve? Long for God to answer your iniquities with with grace. And and long for others to have their iniquities responded to with grace rather than that they get wiped out and, oh, he got what was coming to him. And Just so I don't get accused of... uh, Never meddling, let me really bring it home to UPC as we come to the end of it. Um, I've been here long enough to have heard several sides of stories uh, regarding some of the various staff who've left UPC in recent years. And some of the turmoil that's caused and it's caused some to already leave. And I've said to you before, I'm not here to assess blame on individual people, former or current, not here to assess blame on the elders, though I am here to help the elders better understand what's transpired under their leadership and in the leadership culture so that they can learn and better prepare for the future because living in the present and the future are the only options that we have and praying for God's mercy. But what I'm speaking about now is That we use appropriate comparisons and contrasts as we study these Bible texts. Uh, I almost fear to say that. Did did you know that the SAT over the last 15-20 years has taken out uh, uh, all analogy questions pretty much that required you to know how to make comparisons and contrasts, which is why communication in our culture is utter chaos. People don't even know how to say it's like Hitler in this way, but it's not like Hitler in this way. You may be like a Nazi in this way, but here are 40 ways you're not like a Nazi. We don't even know how to think. We're being wrapped around the devil's hands, you know, by the foolishness of our cultural teaching. But we, if we apply the scripture carefully, can look at ourselves through the mercy seat of the cross. And whether decisions or indecisions, There are things that elders, pastor and staff could have done better over recent years. There have also been frustrations on the part of some that no doubt had real legitimacy, but there have also been actions in the manner in which some have left that brought further hurt and harm because they need the mercy of God as much as the ones that they felt hurt them. Do you hear me? We rarely get it right. We can only do the best we know how to do and and pray that we'll let people come into our lives in the moment, and if not, at least afterwards, and look honestly at ourselves. Here, I think David's personal mercy to Shammai is a great model to us, in spite of all of David's other weaknesses. And I could preach you another whole sermon on how badly David treated Absalom by not disciplining him and then halfway disciplining him and turning him bitter. And Absalom was very gifted, and it cost David and the kingdom greatly. But even though David knew that Shammai could cause Solomon trouble, he left it to Solomon on how to deal with Shammai, and Solomon showed grace. Live in Jerusalem before the face of God and the king, and you shall live. And it was Shammai's own character and sin refusing that mercy and leaving the safety of the presence of God in the city that brought his own judgment on him. Brothers and sisters, uh, King David was the greatest king of Israel. And what a mess. If you can read the story of King David's life and not weep, and then not see things in your own life. You're not really reading the biblical text. The life of King David in the Bible is one of the places where the statement is true that the Bible is a book that if man alone could have written it, he wouldn't have. Because the greatest hero is the greatest jerk and failure. But when the light of God shines, he turns back to God. And he's ultimately more concerned about the glory of God. And he'll even trust God with the judgment. He doesn't want to choose when he's given the option. We as UPC uh, need to learn from David who loved God greatly, was disciplined and discipled greatly, and showed mercy greatly. And my prayer is that we, like David, will sing psalms and hymns like he sang. That put our tender hearts before God. And that we'll love our brothers and sisters. Whether we're mad at them for leaving or we're wondering if we ought to leave with them. I'm so thankful you haven't left. And I pray that God, and I've watched this over other interims, uh, people come and go sometimes two or three times in the process, uh, including when the new pastor comes. But God's in charge of it all. And just in case you haven't caught this point, I'll end with this. God's in charge. You're not. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing like your word. that can give us discernment that goes to the depths of our being. And in that discernment, Lord, you promise to make us more like Jesus, even if it hurts, and it will. Give us endurance, and let us hug one another and encourage one another along the way. We pray in Jesus' name. having heard of God's mercies, let's stand and respond by praising Him.